When it comes to epic poetry, there's a strong case to be made that the ancient Indian story, the Mahabharata, is the most epic. So the epic is like 100,000 verses long-ish. 70, 75,000 in the critical edition, 100,000 by the, by the text's own count. That, just for, for reference, is like seven times the Iliad and the Odyssey combined. That's Nell Shapiro-Hawley, a scholar of South Asian studies at Harvard University. The core part of the Mahabharata tells the story of a war between two sets of cousins who are fighting over who gets to rule their kingdom. The war is 18 days long. It is brutal. Almost everybody dies. And at the end of it, the inheritors of the kingdom are left to rule over very little. Within the Mahabharata is the Bhagavad Gita, one of the best known and most beloved of all Hindu texts. The Mahabharata has been read, translated, and reimagined for nearly 2,500 years. But there's a problem with trying to read it in its entirety. The text is also a bit cursed. Bad things are said to befall those who read the text from beginning to end. Translating the whole thing is even worse. If you're ever wondering why there isn't a complete translation of the critical edition of the Mahabharata, this is why. It is cursed. Um, people have literally died. And and in that, I mean, that tradition of sort of in, it, it being, the, of the text being a little um, standing in a sort of uneasy relationship with, with us, it goes back a really long time. So even at the turn of the second millennium, when the, when the Telugu poet Nannaya was going to translate the Mahabharata, all of it, from Sanskrit into Telugu, he got through the first bit and then, and then died. And it was up to two more Telugu poets after him to finish the epic. But even then, they left a little bit undone so, so that the whole thing would be unfinished. And this is actually, this is really important thematically for the Mahabharata, the idea that it is inauspicious to have the whole thing. It's considered bad luck to have the entire Mahabharata in your house today. People usually only own part of the text, and they often go outside to read it. So we as readers always have a little bit of an uneasy relationship with, with the text, which is super interesting because the Mahabharata also claims to contain everything that exists. So if it tells every story, if it contains everything that exists, then that exists in a really interesting tension with the fact that we also must leave it unfinished. Um, that actually it's, it's completeness, it's sort of gestures toward universalism are, are a little bit dangerous. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Nell Shapiro-Hawley to discuss the Mahabharata. So is it kind of seen as sacred history for you know, contemporary Hindus? Certainly in the modern period in India, it has been read by many, I don't want to say all, I think far from all, but by many as an absolute like civilizational epic that tells a very 
real, in whatever way you want to take real history of these are the people we are descended from. This is this is our story. The Mahabharata was composed or compiled, depending on your theory of how it all came together, between the years 300 BCE-ish and 300 CE-ish. So over a period of about 600 years. The story was developed and shared over the centuries by bards, people who were essentially professional storytellers and oral historians. And it eventually became the most famous story across India. No one knows exactly how the story arrived in its current form, but the text itself tells a story of its creation. We may not know, but the Mahabharata knows. And that story of how the Mahabharata came to be, the text's own accounts of its genesis and the text's own account of its transmission, I would argue is the thing that matters. So even though we don't know whether this whole thing was written by one person or many people, likely many people, because come on. But, um, but even though we don't know that, there is at least an imagined single author figure whose name is actually a bit of a pun. His name is Vyasa. And he's this sage. And the word Vyasa means the compiler. In Hindu tradition, a deity will sometimes descend from the spiritual realm into material form and take on the appearance of someone else. This incarnation is known as an avatar. Vyasa, the author of the Mahabharata, is thought to be the avatar of Vishnu, the god of preservation. According to the Mahabharata, Vyasa dictated the story to Ganesh, one of the best-known, most-worshipped Hindu deities, who wrote it down. But Vyasa isn't just the supposed author of this text. He's also one of the characters. He'll show up from time to time, give advice to someone, uh, tell someone to do something, um, share a long story, or try to persuade one of the characters to, to act in a certain way, and then he'll step back out, and he'll come back in again, and so on. I'd love to know what was going on in the subcontinent at this time and kind of, you know, what does culture, politics, everything look like? This period was just in terms of like massive empires in the subcontinent at the time, a sort of interregnum between the Mauryan Empire on, on the early end and the Gupta Empire on the other end. So... All that to say that the that the Mahabharata, while it is about the disintegration of a great dynasty, is certainly not supposed to map on to um, like an actual dynasty that existed at the time. Much as many people believe that these figures in the text were real historical figures. Religiously, this was the era of Vedic Hinduism, a more ancient tradition that was the precursor to modern Hinduism. Veda is a Sanskrit word that means knowledge, and the Vedas are a large body of religious texts composed of prayers, rituals, and hymns. In the Veda, you have hymns and poems. You have certainly stories, narratives. You have, um, and those are, you know, in, in poetic form. You have mantras, ritual language, and instructions for how to perform those rituals. And you also have a set of other works that sort of rounds out the Vedic corpus that is 
devoted to more instructing and interpret like instructing how to how to do things ritual on how to do things ritually um the sort of interpretation the vedas had you know massive cultural weight what did it mean to be learned to know the veda and that meant memorizing it practicing it and and the sort of question of how many vedas there are that also has a story there you the vedic corpus was initially sort of i think split into two then three then four um and different types of uh of like of brahmins would recite different um parts of that corpus and do the rituals associated with different parts of that corpus the vedas were extremely important however at the time the mahabharata was being composed traditional vedic religion was evolving People were searching for new ideas and approaches to life's questions and challenges. Many were abandoning rituals and material comforts and were instead practicing asceticism. You have the more sort of esoteric end of the Vedic corpus, the Upanishads, things like that. You have Buddhism <laughs> and Jainism, and those are two religions that are both re- big complicated religious traditions that are interested in renunciation let's say um and then you have that on the sort of hinduism or or vedic um side as well people were asking anew what it means to live a good life a moral life the right life the mahabharata explores these questions and possible answers so big themes big themes come up in the text about what is what is our relationship with with the veda and with vedic sacrifice what is um what should you know a king's role in a society be what is the meaning of renunciation when is it okay to go to the forest and give it all up when is it not um what are some of the drawbacks if you do how do you merge the sort of renunciant stream with the practice of ritual stream yeah it sounds like it was a time when many ideas were being debated with intense fervor and you know commitment yeah i i think that's likely that's likely quite true The Mahabharata is distinctive in being a religious scripture that doesn't advocate for a single universal truth. It is a text that promotes debate, discussion, and exploration as an unending process with no need for a final destination. You have no idea that is left undebated. No category goes unquestioned. And as a reader or a listener as the case may be this is one of the most incredible things about being part of this text is that you'll listen to a debate unfold between two characters about say dharma the nature of like good conduct um or contextual conduct and you'll hear it unfold in one way and then somewhere down the line like three books later or however much later you'll hear another version of 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 that debate over exactly the same idea maybe with two different characters and you'll see the whole thing from a new perspective and maybe you'll come to a new conclusion um do we come to a work of literature to get like a 
one stamp viewpoint on like all of existence. No. Um, the point of literature is, I think, really different from that. We we come to literature for emotional reasons and artistic reasons to help us see the world in a different way. And, um, and that is what a lot of these debates, long and technical as they are in the Mahabharata, that is what they help us do. They help us develop um, a real sense of like Polly's perspectivity. You see issues and characters and, um, and, and emotions from all sides in this epic. You never have just one perspective. This is not uh, an epic that answers questions, but rather that teaches you how to ask. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that it has been so often retold and in all of these different ways is not only are all of these retellings giving their own answers, but they're also asking these questions in new ways. Um, so I think I think that's something that we as as readers and listeners now do and we should do and we should keep doing is keep asking the questions. And the text really teaches us how to do that. It encourages us to do that. The Mahabharata creates this atmosphere of searching, debating, and exploring, partly through its use of a frame narrative, which is a series of stories within stories. It begins years after the events of the main story take place. This bard named Ugrashravas walks into a forest. He's walking around. And he finds a group of sages who are in the middle of doing a year, like years-long sacrifice. Um, these things take a long time. And what do you do in the breaks of a ritual? You listen to stories. And so this bard, Ugrashavas, says, all right, like, what story can I tell you? And the sages say, well, we want to hear about this and that and, and the other things and, oh, you know, histories. And and the bard says, well, I just came from this other sacrifice. <laughs> and, you know, they told an amazing story there. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you. And he tells the story of how he had been at this other sacrifice that is performed by a prince named Janamejaya. Prince Janamejaya is the great-grandson of one of the central figures in the epic. Janamejaya was essentially telling the story of his family at this sacrifice that Ugrashavas attended. So, at this other sacrifice, now we're one frame story in. At this other sacrifice, Janamejaya heard the story of his great-grandfathers and their cousins and their great battle with one another. And he, Janamejaya, was told this story by one of the pupils of Vyasa, who is the, as we've said, is the central um, composer figure of the epic, and who is also his, you know, great-great-grandfather, <laughs> quasi-biological great-great-grandfather. So anyway, there Janamejaya is at his sacrifice. And in the breaks in his sacrifice, he is, um, he's listening to the story of his own relatives, his own ancestors. And these two frame stories are, I think, a guide to how 
we approach the Mahabharata now. Like those first sages, you can sort of vaguely know about the story and be interested in it and sort of and hear it and enjoy it. And you can be Janamejaya listening to it. And it's personal. These are your ancestors. These are, this is your family. This is your history. Now you've talked about it as being, uh, you know, at its highest level, a story of a, a family war. Take us through, uh, what, what, is, what is this enormous text about? Well, it all begins when a king and a fisherwoman fall in love. <laughs> um, and both of them have children from previous relationships. The king is named Shantanu. Before he met this fisherwoman, Shantanu had a son with the river goddess Ganga. Their son was named Bhishma, and he was in line to inherit his father's kingdom. Then one day, King Shantanu was on the banks of the Ganges, and he met this fisherwoman. And this woman named Satyavati, um, she marries this king, but her father only allows her to do it on two conditions. Um, one is that her children will inherit the kingdom and not Bhishma, Shantanu's son from the previous relationship. And Bhishma will also not himself then have any more sons um, that could possibly get in the way of this inheritance. So already you see this wonderful theme of the sort of ideal of like perfect inheritance that is about to be completely <laughs> stomped on. Um, because <laughs> what happens is Bhishma, who loves his father and wants him to be happy, says, okay, I will take a vow of total celibacy and I'm, I'll... I'll never get married. I'll never have kids. You and Satyavati can have all the kids you want. Mazel tov. And King Shantanu and Satyavati have two sons. Shantanu dies. And these two sons, um, the first one dies before having an heir. And the second one does marry. He marries two princesses. Um... But he also dies before they can have a child. So we have this classic now story of there is a kingdom with no heir. At this point, Queen Satyavati, the fisherwoman, is left with the two princesses her second son married and no one to inherit the kingdom. She turns to Shantanu's son from a previous marriage, Bhishma, and asks him to step in and produce an heir with one of these princesses. He says, no, I took a vow. It's, that's it. So she then says, well, turns out I actually have a child myself from a previous dalliance with a sage named Parashara. And this is, this is a, a relationship that she had before she met Shantanu. And she says, well, and, you know, and the child, he, he went off into the forest to become a sage and, you know, haven't seen him in a while, but like, okay, let's get him in here and see if he can help us out. And she does, she calls upon him. And who is this one? Vyasa. This is our Mahabharata's composer and, uh, and compiler. 
So that is who Vyasa is. Vyasa comes in and there are these two queens and Satyavati sends Vyasa to sleep with the first queen, the elder queen. The elder queen is not expecting Vyasa. She's expecting Bhishma. Bhishma, you know, was raised a prince. He smells nice. He looks good. Vyasa has been living in the forest for God knows how long. He smells disgusting. His hair is like matted, you know? I mean, this is in the book. Like, this is how Vyasa paints, Vyasa, the imagined author of the text, paints himself as this like smelly, totally like repulsive ascetic. And, um, and she, the, the elder queen is so terrified by what she sees that she closes her eyes while they're having sex. And Vyasa then curses her, saying, your child will be born blind because you shut your eyes. Vyasa then goes to have a child with the younger queen, but she is just as terrified and repulsed by Vyasa. When she sees him, all of her color drains and she goes completely pale. And Vyasa doesn't like this either. And he curses her, saying, your child will be born pale. And then... It comes time to go back around to the to the elder wife and the elder wife's like, oh, no, <laughs> I'm not doing this again. So she sends her servant girl in her stead. And so the third woman that Fiasa has a child with is a servant girl. And the servant girl has then a, a servant child. Um, so what comes of this completely wonderfully bizarre alliance are is are three three men none of whom is actually able to rule the kingdom someone blind someone pale and someone who's a servant when the blind son grows up he marries a princess and they have 100 sons these hundred sons and that whole side of the family is generally called the kauravas and they're the sort of antagonist side or the anti-hero side the pale son named Pandu marries two women, but he can't have a child. He got cursed by a sage so that if he has sex, he will die. He, thankfully, married the right woman. So his elder, his elder wife, um, uh, Kunti, she, when she was an adolescent girl, got a boon from uh, from a really rather terrifying sage whom she once did a very good job of serving when he came to her house. And this boon that she that she was given was to be able to call upon any of the gods that she wants at any point. And the, the subtext is call upon them to be with her sexually and that she could then bear a child by any of these gods. She tried this out before she met Pandav and had a child with the sun god. She didn't really want to have a child. She was mostly just curious to see if it would work. So once she gave birth, she sent her son down the river. She then marries Pandu, and since he can't procreate, she calls upon the gods and has five more sons. And those five boys are called the Pandavas, and they are what we typically think, who we typically think of as the protagonists of the Mahabharata, those five, those five sons. So you'll remember that we have 100, the 100 sons on one side, the five sons of Pandu and Kunti and Madri and the Vedic gods on the other. And then we have Karana, who is the, that first 
um, son of Kunti, who is the secret. And Karana finds his way into the family of the 100 sons of Dhritarashtra and is, they don't know his origin story. He doesn't know his origin story, um, but he's adopted by a charioteer who works for the, that family of, of Dhritarashtra and his 100 sons. And so Karana, while he is technically the brother of the, the sixth and eldest brother of the, of the five Pandavas, um, our protagonists, he grows up with like uh, with their cousins on the other side and, and becomes best friends with Duryodhana, the eldest of those 100 brothers. So those are our two sets of cousins. Eventually, these two sets of cousins, the Karavas, who are the 100 sons, and the Pandavas, go to war with each other over who should rule the kingdom. Right before the battle, Arjuna, one of the five Pandavas, starts to feel bad about going to war with his family. He shares his feelings of hesitation with his guide and charioteer, Krishna, who is really an avatar of Vishnu. The dialogue between Arjuna and Krishna is known as the Bhagavad Gita, which is probably the best known and influential Hindu text, especially in the West. So Arjuna and Krishna are best friends, very close, and also related in these different ways, um, biologically. And, and this is when Krishna says to him, this is, this is your duty. Everything you think about life and death is in fact an illusion. <laughs> and, um, and this is what you must do as a warrior and man up. He says, don't be a eunuch, man up. Um, there's a lot of gender stuff in the Mahabharata and it's not all about women. It's a lot about a sort of interrogation of masculinity as well. Um, and, and, then proceeds to go on to deliver this really incredible um, lecture, really, about social theory, um, philosophy, um, metaphysics, the reconciliation of ritual practice with renunciation. Um, the term yoga is used a lot, not always in the same way. The term karma is used a lot, also not always in the same way. Um, dharma is another major key term here. And in the middle of all this, Krishna reveals himself to be Krishna the God, not just Krishna, your charioteer and best friend, but the God Krishna. And it's an incredible passage in um, in the Gita when that happens, and this is the this is the vision of Krishna in his sort of universal form, Vishvarupa, and Arjuna sees this, and we, the reader, see it all through Arjuna's eyes. Um, we are Arjuna in that moment. It's it's really amazing. Um, and it's a rather terrifying vision. All, you know, he is, he, Krishna, in his universal form, all the creatures are running into his giant mouth, which is just open and gaping. And, um, and he is, he's, he is time and he is death. Um, he is everything in the universe. And Arjuna is terrified. <laughs> 
and says, I had no idea this was you. I am so sorry that I called you, you know, friend. Like, I can't believe I would say like, hey, buddy, um, please forgive me. And would you please go back to being your normal forearmed self? And he does, <laughs> thankfully. And then continues on and, um, and, and delivers the, the rest of the, of the lecture known as the Bhagavad Gita. What are the themes of this particular passage? So some chapters talk more about, Krishna is speaking more about sort of like the metaphysical like nature of reality. Um, the separation, for example, of sort of uh, ultimate like objective um, like transcendent reality, purusha, from like the the imminent reality of prakriti, which is everything we can see, touch, and think about. Um, it's a, it's a dualist worldview. It's not it's not a it's not non dual. Um, he talks about social theory and about how different groups of people in society have different roles to play, and how important it is that if you are in a particular role, that you play that role and not the role of someone else. Um, hence, Arjuna as a warrior, um, you know, as the as the son of a queen, um, his role is to fight and to dominate and to exert his power outward. Um, he speak. He Krishna speaks of um, the as I was saying the sort of reconciliation of ritual action with renunciation and this idea that if you if you do ritual action without attachment to the outcomes of those actions, then that is a sort of renunciatory way of still living in a ritually oriented and behavior oriented action oriented world. And that is what is called like karma yoga. Krishna is able to convince Arjuna to fight and the battle takes place. The Pandavas are victorious. The story continues on and eventually at the end, all of the Pandava brothers die except for one named Yudhisthira. He passes God's judgment and ascends to heaven. The Mahabharata is one of the two major Sanskrit epics of ancient India. The other is called the Ramayana. In terms of the two texts, what can be said is, first of all, they're beautifully intertextual. So the story of the, Mah the, the Ramayana is told in the Mahabharata. Um, you, there's an entire section of the, of the Mahabharata that is a retelling of the Ramayana. Um, and the parallels are quite real. Um, themes of being um, needing to spend a lot of time in the forest instead of being at the top of the kingdom where you should be. That happens to both the protagonists of the of the um, Mahabharata and the Ramayana. In neither epic is all quite happily ever after. Um, but there are there are many distinctions between the two texts, both on a literary level and on a plot level, obviously. But one that I want to highlight is there's a huge difference between in the Ramayana, the sort of antagonists being non-human. And even though they have many human and like quite sympathetic qualities, um, but the Rakshasas are, you know, explicitly framed as like Ravana is explicitly framed as like other. Whereas in the Mahabharata, the war is at home. 
you are fighting against your own cousins and literally your own, in one case, your own brother. So, so the, the Ramayana sort of explicitly works toward, I think, a sense of like integration, whereas the Mahabharata is really quite the opposite, I think, and explores these themes of disintegration and decay throughout. Since their initial composition, the stories in the Mahabharata have gone through many retellings and adaptations. Each era redefines the Mahabharata, but the original Sanskrit story remains the foundation. Because the Mahabharata is any, is any instantiation of this story, and, um, and it's all of them together. When I say the Mahabharata, I am talking about the Sanskrit epic, which in itself has many forms, many, many manuscripts, many recensions, um, you know, like that in itself is a multiplicity, but the Mahabharata is, it could be argued much more than a text and really much more like a tradition. And it is the many retellings of the Mahabharata that have made the, the biggest impact on like South Asian <laughs> life and culture um, today. So, so even though like when you and I are having a conversation about the Mahabharata, but really we should, we should be saying this is a conversation about a Mahabharata <laughs> in Sanskrit from this period, there are many, many, many more Mahabharatas in almost every other Indian language, composed both orally and in writing since the, since the end of the first millennium, at least. So tell us about the role of this text in uh, Indian culture and life, and to the extent you know any any of its wider global influence that you're, you know, you're aware of. In terms of the epic's broader influence, it's hard to, it's hard to pinpoint any aspect of South Asian um, literary culture, truly in like any South Asian language in any genre or in any period of time in Indian history, when it, like when where the Mahabharata has not touched, it is simply everywhere, and and that is um, that speaks to the to the absolute um, expansiveness and meaning of of this text. Isn't it amazing that this that the Mahabharata, which has, as we've talked about, a bit of a dangerous aspect to it. It's about this catastrophic fratricidal war that enters in and like <laughs> an extremely um, decay-oriented era of like cosmic <laughs> life and everybody dies. And it's so dangerous that you really don't want to even keep it in your house. And yet, this is the text that everyone is recreating. This is this is it. Um, this 
this dangerous story, this dark story, this story full of violence, a story about warriors who fight to get their kingdom back and then don't even enjoy it when they get there. <gasps> um, that this is like, I mean, it. I think it takes a real like, if I may, like civilizational intelligence <laughs> to like be so introspective about how, um, about just how difficult and violent and violent human life and society is and to, and really to commit to exploring that um, because, you know, not every, you know, we, we in America have, have more idealistic stories to tell. Um, but the idea that the Mahabharata would be, would be the text that where for every destructive bent in, in the story itself, it's countered with a recreation um, in whenever you retell it in whatever genre and whatever language. Um, that is just marvelous. Uh, it's, it's beautiful. I mean, I, I agree with you. I, there's, there's a deep wisdom about the provisionality of happiness, the provisionality of peace, and a recognition of just the danger that lurks in every human heart and the way that that danger gets expressed into history, into um, into life, the way, you know, family spills over and, and sucks you in to vortices of, uh, of uh, you know, of, of evil and danger and death. And yet we maintain hope. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. This idea that, I mean, these these protagonists, are such beautifully flawed heroes and the antagonists are such sympathetic figures. Everyone is deliberately painted in shades of gray. Even though these heroes are looked up to in some ways as like characters to emulate, in the Mahabharata itself, they are painted as like in, in varying shades of gray and really struggle to live up to their own ideals and their own sort of mythologies at times. It speaks to, I think, to a certain fearlessness and in confronting, um, in confronting some of the worst parts of, and most challenging parts of, of being human and asking really, really hard questions Nothing, no idea, dharma, karma, like, and no idea in the Mahabharata goes undebated. Everything is subject to debate, like, long, long, long books on, you know, what is the nature of X. Um, every ideal is deconstructed. And to jump into that, I think, um, is really exciting. And it also takes some courage. <laughs> These themes have resonated with readers and audiences for hundreds of years, and still do. So, I mean, if you go on Netflix, you will find Mahabharatas. There are, like, you are, they are, we are making Mahabharatas constantly today. There are Mahabharatas in, um, oh my God, I don't even know where to begin. Just, just from the earliest period, you get literally in the first millennium, you have other Mahabharatas being written in Sanskrit, plays and poems in Sanskrit that are based on, I, and I think within the same language you can truly say based on, but 
that that retell these stories um, from from the epic, but in totally new ways. <laughs> um, different characters come in, they do different things, they have different adventures. Um, you get to other languages, regional classical languages of India, Tamil, Telugu, Kannada, um, Hindi. I mean, every major language of India has has its own many Mahabharatas. The Mahabharata is an ancient text that has been foundational for Hindu culture. But it continues to live on today because the story is never really finished. It raises more questions about existence than it gives definitive answers. And as we engage with these stories, we, through our imagination and attention, provide them with new life. Really, for the last 2,000 years, the classic response to the Mahabharata is not to read it, but to recreate it. That is what it means to engage with this work, is to tell it again. Um, because, as we say, there is something dangerous about a, a finished Mahabharata. You can't, you can't cap it. You have to keep it going. Um, and that's sort of how, one of the ways you can escape the curse. And since this text is cursed, we don't want any bad luck for our listeners or ourselves. So we're going to leave this episode just a little unfit. Writ Large is produced by Jack Pombriant, Liza French, and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Farron Dew. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.